This morning we're talking about the power of God. As we move through the attributes of God, we're going to be looking at the end of the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis, one of my personal favorite stories uh, in the book of Genesis, Um, but it's a long one, so we can't read the whole story. Um, Well, we could, but it would be a long day. So um, we're going to read the very end, but I want to just sort of remind you of the, of the kind of high points of, the, of Joseph's life uh, up until the point where we'll be reading it in our scriptures. You can turn there if you'd like while I'm talking. It's on page 44 of, of your pew Bible. Um, if you'd like to read the story of, of Joseph, um, it begins in, in chapter 37 of Genesis and kind of continues through the end. Chapter 38 is kind of about something else, but... Basically, chapter 37 through, 30, uh, through 50 are all this wonderful story of Joseph. And what happens in this story is, as you remember, Joseph, uh, as a young man, is his favorite, the favorite of his father's sons, and he has this technicolor dream coat. I think that's uh, the right translation. He has this coat that um, makes his brothers very jealous, and so they first decide that they're going to off him, but then they decide to sell him into slavery. Um, to some Midianite travelers who then sell him to an Egyptian named Potiphar. So things are not looking good for Joseph. Um, And in Potiphar's house, things start to look a little better. He has some success. He's doing well. He's kind of uh, in a position of power in Potiphar's house until he is uh, sort of falsely accused of assault, actually, by the wife of his master. Uh, And so then he's sent to prison. So it's kind of up. First it's down, then it's up, then it's down, then it's up. In prison, uh, he starts to have success again and uh, is given some responsibility in prison, kind of succeeds. He becomes friends with a cupbearer uh, who is a very, uh, one of the highest posi- government positions in Egypt. Um, becomes friends with him, the cupbearer is about to be released, and he says, Hey, remember me, remember, you know, remember me, remember, uh, maybe you can help me get out of here. I've been doing so well in prison, such good behavior, and so on. And the cupbearer promises that he'll remember him when he leaves prison, but of course he forgets for two years. So Joseph remains in prison and then for two years, so down again. Uh, things were looking good and then it looks, looks bad again. For two more years he just languishes in prison until he's remembered by the cupbearer and he's called up to interpret a dream of the pharaoh that was um, confusing to the pharaoh. And so then he starts to have success again and he goes up into the, uh, given tons of power all over Egypt, becomes kind of the right-hand man to the pharaoh, and what he does is he stores up a lot of food um, and a lot of grain so that, uh, and then a famine comes, and so Joseph has done what was needed to pre- prevent a lot of starvation. Now, what's interesting is that in this story, then, Joseph is this uh, muckety-muck in Egypt, and his brothers then come down, not knowing that it's Joseph. They come down from where they were living, to Egypt to get some food. And so, very interesting kind of uh, turnabout here. Uh, Joseph's brothers come to him not knowing that it's their brother and ask for food, and there's this kind of complicated uh, back and forth that goes on as Joseph tries to get the whole family to come down to Egypt, and they um, eventually come to settle in Egypt. He eventually reveals himself to his brothers, and his family returns, and then their father, Jacob, dies. And it's at that point, uh, when, when Jacob dies, that our text begins on page 44. 
So um, let me invite you to hear now the word of the Lord. We'll be reading from verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because, of, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, as we've heard this story and as we're about to think more deeply about what it has to teach us about your power, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts. Give us insight into our own lives that we may see your power at work around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are talking about the attribute of the power of God. Usually when we think about the concept of power, it's not a very comforting one. We're all Americans, have a healthy suspicion of power, being uh, people becoming too powerful. How does the saying go? Power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so it's true that in our experience, powerful, the powerful, people with power are often inaccessible. They're far off, they're distant, and sometimes they're frightening. The powerful, in our experience, are not usually the kinds of people we can get close to or know. I was thinking about, uh, back in April, I was um, flying from Chicago back to D.C., and we were stuck on the runway for a while because Air Force One was coming in to land in Chicago from D.C., ironically. And um, so they wouldn't let any of the planes even move at all until Air Force One had landed. And I thought... Uh, Yes, power is inaccessible and unapproachable. We can't even have our planes moving when the powerful are around, although I did snap a pretty good picture on my cell phone out the window. <laughs> but we think of power as unapproachable. We think of it as being distant, far away in Washington or Wall Street or somewhere else in the world. And when we think of power, it's kind of a frightening term because powerful people have power over us by definition. And so we're thinking about the concept of God's power, maybe it's a little unsettling. This idea of God's omnipotence might not be a comforting thought for us. We might worry that the idea of uh, absolute power, corrupting absolutely, might apply to God, who the Bible teaches us and our tradition teaches us has absolute power. And as you've seen the last couple weeks, Pete preached through Revelation 4 and 5, powerful images of God's power. He, the Lamb is on the throne the Lord can do as he pleases. There is no power that does not belong to him. Sometimes by grace, I think we see God's power in powerful ways in our lives, even miraculous ways. 
And those are wonderful experiences. But that sometimes leads us to think of God's power as something that he turns on and turns off at certain times. That there is, that God is on the throne and he's got all his power and sometimes he shoots some down our way and other times he withholds it. And so God's power is ambiguous to us, I think. We're not sure whether it's a power we can trust or a power that, we, that will come through for us eventually. And so this lingering question of God's power, is it good news for us? What does it mean for us? How does God exercise his power in our lives? Is it random or capricious or unfair or thoughtless? Is it like a spigot that God turns off and turns on again? Is it sometimes absent? Is it threatening? When we think about power, these are often things that emerge. Distance, inaccessibility, and unapproachability. This authority. So instead of taking, uh, we could have taken many texts that describe the glory of God's power, like Revelation 4 and 5, I wanted to do something different and think of it in terms of the story of Joseph. Because this story brings into focus the power of God and speaks to us, I think, in, a, in, a, in, its, in the way that it is the story of a life, explains and illustrates God's perplexing and comforting power in a unique way. And it reminds us that go, though God can and does reveal his power in miraculous kind of earth-shattering ways, his power is also active and unnoticed in the everyday of our experience. I love the story of Joseph. It's a story of, uh, of a life with great ups and great downs, fabulous successes, uh, incredible struggle, heartbreaking failure. And the story, if you read it this week, you'll see this reconciliation that, that he has with his brothers. It's very powerful. We have Joseph um, tearing up and weeping in our passage that we read today, but the whole sequence of him reuniting with these brothers who had betrayed him is incredibly powerful and emotional. These brothers who had wished him dead and sold him into slavery. But this passage we've read this morning has this incredible bombshell of a line that I just uh, sticks in my mind and I, and I speaks to us of this perplexing and comforting power of God that is both confusing and perplexing and yet also comforting. And that is this phrase that Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. In Joseph's life, with all the ups and downs, we see that the power of God does not mean that evil things will not happen. You meant it for evil. You meant evil, Joseph says to his brothers. He's a, he's a remarkable man, Joseph, with divine insight, but this <clears throat> does not mean that he is somehow protected from really horrendous evil, if you think about it. Family betrayal, unjust accusations, being imprisoned for years for things he didn't do. All kinds of bad stuff happens in Joseph's life. I wonder if there were times when he wondered if God's power faucet had been turned off in his life. But we see at the end of the story, when we see the whole story of his life, that God's power is not the sort of thing that sprinkles fairy dust on evil things and magically turns them into good things. When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, that was evil. There was nothing good about that. God was not pleased when that happened, but it did not extinguish his power. It did not foil his plans. God was still all-powerful, even 
when that evil thing happened. <clears throat> when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph and then falsely accused him, God didn't smile when that happened, but neither did he stop. His power wasn't somehow frustrated. His plans were not halted. When the cupbearer forgot about Joseph and left him in prison for two years, it wasn't because God had forgotten what his plan was. So God's power, God's omnipotence, doesn't mean that evil things never happen. It means instead that the evil things that happen do not handcuff God. They do not frustrate his power. Rather, God is so powerful that even evil things can be taken up by him and used for his purposes of salvation. Those things don't become magically good, but God is so good that he can use them. God's power is such that he can, we might put it this way, God's power is such that he can make the devil's plans serve him unintentionally. God can use difficult trials and struggles for the plans that he would like to bring to pass. This is what Joseph realizes in, in our passage. You meant, you brothers meant this for evil against me. But God had other plans. God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so in the perplexing and yet comforting hands of God and his power, something so evil as selling a brother as a slave becomes in God's hands the means by which thousands of people are saved from starvation. God uses this terrible act and puts Joseph in a place where he can, he's in a position to save thousands. Reminds me of that oft-quoted verse in Romans 8.28 that proclaims, I think, the same message. Paul's saying the same thing. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's a thing we like to say. It's, a, it's actually a little bit more complicated than we usually uh, quote it. Um, we need to be careful because we need to remember that this passage and Joseph's life do not teach us that God does all things or that all things are good, but rather that God's power is such that he can work all things together for our good, which means ultimately for our salvation. And so what the life of Joseph reveals about the power of God is that far from being a kind of distant or inaccessible or frightening power that sometimes is happening and sometimes is switched off, we see a God who is so intimately involved in our lives, working his power in so many unnoticed ways that he is almost invisible, but even working in his power through setbacks and trials and even suffering to ultimately bring about the salvation of nations. I thought about this passage, uh, this story of Joseph, and I thought in so many ways it's a foreshadowing of, of Christ, the life of Christ. Because there too, right, God was working mysteriously and invisibly through some terrible things, through betrayal, through injustice, through suffering, to bring about the salvation of, of nations. In the life of Christ, God wasn't pleased to see Peter deny Jesus three times. God wasn't glad to see the injustice of his own son who had done nothing wrong hanging on a cross between criminals. It did not please God. These things were evil through and through. This suffering grieved God's heart, but it didn't stop his hand. That is the nature of God's power. 
we could say of the cross, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. And so for me, this is a more helpful way to think about God's power, not as a concept, but as uh, the way it works out in the story of our lives. God is not a distant force or will that is sometimes exerted upon us, sometimes turned on and sometimes not, but the hand of God and the strong arm of the Lord is always at work all around us and at all times, even terrible times, working for the purpose of salvation. So if Joseph could look back on his life and say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. If we can look back on the cross of Jesus Christ and say, this was meant for evil, but God meant it for good. God brought good out of it, the salvation of the world. Then the invitation for us then is to put on eyes of faith and look at our own lives. Even the difficulties, the evil, the suffering, the trouble that is before us in our own lives and with eyes of faith, say the same thing. In spite of this difficult circumstance, these setbacks I am facing in my work or my relationships or my health, in spite of minor annoyances or even terrible evil, the power of God's goodness is still working. Which seems very counterintuitive. I think we can only say such a thing as this on the basis of Scripture. It's not our experience that will reveal it to us. It's trusting that God is ultimately writing the story and that the story isn't done yet. We've seen Joseph say this morning, we've seen how it connects with this, the same thing happening in the cross of Christ. God is working throughout the scriptures in deep darkness. There can be no darkness that is too dark for him. As I was thinking about this sermon this week, I took some time to read a book um, that is a very profound book that's actually in our church library, if you want to take a look at it. It's called A Grace Disguised. And in this book, the author, Jerry Sitzer, describes an unfathomable, unfathomable loss that he experienced in his life when in a single car accident, he lost his mother and his wife and his four-year-old daughter all at once. And this book kind of chronicles in a very honest and faithful way his grief and his anger and his reflection and his faithfulness of God, uh, reflection on the faithfulness of God in it. And I was struck by, at a point in this book, he actually refers to this passage that we've read today, the story of Joseph, when Joseph says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And he kind of claims it for his own experience. He says this about Joseph in the book. Joseph recognizes in the unfolding of his life that God is good in ways that he could not see earlier. The Joseph story helps us to see that our own tragedies can be a very, good, a very bad chapter in a very good book. The terror of randomness is enveloped by the mysterious purposes of God. And he says this, I have often imagined my own story, a terrible story, my own story fitting into some greater scheme, the half of which I may never fathom. I simply do not see the bigger picture, but I choose to believe that there is a bigger picture and that my loss is part of some wonderful story offered by, authored by God himself. And so for Jerry Sitzer, this man who suffered deeply, he sees as well as Joseph does the power of God revealed in this story, this power of God that is perplexing and confusing, but also providing profound comfort. 
in the life of this man and so many of our lives, we can't, like Joseph, see how the story ends. We don't see how it ends. And so we can't see that larger purpose that God is working in his power. Joseph sees the full picture, but most often we don't. And so we are invited then to walk by faith and not by sight, to trust in God's power, even though we may not know and may never know in this life what God's power is up to. I think in the end, what we see in our passage at the end of, the Joseph, of Joseph's life, we see that the power of God, far from confining us the way human power do, far from sort of uh, a, a force that, that weighs us down, as human authority often does, the power of God actually sets us free. It liberates us. And I think this is what we see at the end of our passage today. We see that Joseph, by trusting in the power of God, has found his own freedom. You can just see it as he, as he, as he freely welcomes his brothers in spite of the evil they've done to us. He has found his freedom. We, Joseph is free in the end of his life to be humble and to be human because he trusts in God's power. You see he responds to his brother's pleas for mercy. He says, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? He's so, he is set free. He doesn't have to be the ruler of the universe. He doesn't have to be the one writing the story. He doesn't have to explain or understand everything. He rests in the knowledge, the same knowledge we proclaimed in our statement of faith, that God protects us so well that without the will of our Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from our head. Joseph and we can be set free from our striving to control our lives and the lives of others. So God's power sets us free to be humble and human. And I think it sets us free also to walk in faith and forgiveness. Joseph forgives for things, for crimes, that are, it is almost impossible for us to imagine. He has been sold into slavery by his brothers. But his forgiveness is surely a result of his knowledge that God has directed his steps, even in and through those trials. Joseph sees that he is where he is, and his brothers are where they are, not by any effort or deserving, but by the hand of God and God's power. Because Joseph knows that he has been in God's hand all along, he does not need to blame his brothers for what has happened in his life. Because after all, as he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Your story was not the only story that was being written, he says to his brothers. We are more free, I think, to extend grace when we realize that all we have and all we are in our lives and the things that have happened to us are part of multiple stories and ultimately the story that God is writing. And that is a story of grace. And so God's power sets us free to walk in faith and forgiveness. And God's power finally sets us free to live without fear. That's what Joseph says two times in our passage. Do not fear. And in his life, he, re- he shows a life lived without fear. The power of God means we need not fear our circumstances because they're in the hands of God. We need not fearfully doubt God because we know that even in the deepest darkness, even in suffering and betrayal and injustice, even hanging on a cross, God is able to work salvation. Even there, we can say, this was meant for evil, but God is working good. This is the power of God revealed in the life of Joseph. This is the power of God revealed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus, God has already walked through the deepest darkness and has emerged victorious. And so for those who are in Christ, there is no suffering and no trial and no temptation, no evil that God has not already met and provided for on the cross. And so what we mean for evil and what is meant against us as evil, 
God conquers with his love and his power. What evil is meant for us, God weaves into his larger story of redemption. This is the power of God, the power that cannot be thwarted, the power to bring about what he wants, and what he wants is the salvation of nations and of ourselves. And so this is the power of God, perplexing because it means that we are not ultimately in control, and comforting because it means that we are ultimately not in control, but that our God is. Let us pray.